Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode 11. We are talking about Moonraker from 1979, starring Roger Moore as James Bond. I'm Brian. I'm Gary. And this is Edmund. So Gary, why don't you give us a quick description of the setup for Moonraker? Sure. Um, basically, at the end of the last movie, we thought James Bond would be returning in Free Rise only. But due to the success of Star Wars, it was decided that uh, they would pursue something with a more space feel. So Moonraker was the next next movie. And in this movie, James Bond is tasked with finding out who stole a Moonraker space shuttle and has vanished with it and what nefarious purposes are they going to be using it for. He is uh, sent uh, to basically hunt down some clues to try and figure out who it was who stole the space shuttle and is fairly quickly turned onto the space shuttle's own manufacturer, Hugo Drax as a very, very likely suspect. And uh, he then basically follows clues from one place to another. It's a bit of, it's a bit of globe hopping here from um, California, although it's really France, of course, from California to Venice to Rio before uh, discovering uh, what Drax's plan really is and uh, teaming up with a beautiful CIA agent to take him down. And of course, all the while, he gets to encounter his old friend from the last movie, Jaws, who tries to kill him at numerous, numerous opportunities and fails in a comical manner every single time. So, that I mean, the, the movie tries to have a lot of serious moments, but it also has a lot of comedy moments, usually uh, featuring Jaws. And to some extent, that, that weakened the character a little, but uh, it doesn't ruin the movie for me. Yes, we have uh, the main Bond girl in this is Dr. Holly Goodhead, who, who is the, the, C, the CIA agent you mentioned, played by Lois Scheel. And they, they did bring in uh, an American actress for that, and that worked pretty well, I thought. Yeah, although she really, I mean, she's just nothing wrong but there's nothing really memorable about her that's true yeah she she really she's attractive she plays sort of the spunky character like the last movie uh they've made her uh, a fully competent cia agent so the last movie you had triple x the russian agent here you have her american counterpart uh but aside from giving her that background they haven't made her all that dynamic they they combined the bond girl with felix Leiter. basically yeah (laughs) and and so they try to give them a rivalry, uh, but it's more of a, they try to make it more of a, like a, a Catherine Hepburn kind of standoffish thing, but it, it doesn't really doesn't really work that well for her because she comes off as, as much, much colder than she should be. And I think it's hard, it's hard for the audience to warm to her too much. Yeah, the chemistry and the repartee they had was okay, but it didn't quite work uh, as it probably should have. Yeah, Bond has better chemistry with uh, the secondary girl in the movie Corinne Cleary, who was actually had actually done a few fairly racy French movies at the time, and uh, I think he has better chemistry with her, even though they only have a couple of scenes together. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's one of the the many Bond girls who is uh, effectively working for the villain, but ends up helping out Bond in any case. 
often to their detriments. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and in this case, uh, she's one of the uh, earlier plot elements of the movie where Bond, she helps Bond break into Drax's safe, oh, somewhat unwillingly, but she does give him the information he needs. And then Drax basically has her killed by sending her his, uh, his Dobermans, his, his trained Dobermans after her. And again, another brilliant, brilliant scene, really dark, very disturbing actually, where she's pursued through the forest. You feel like you're watching a completely different movie uh, when you see that sequence. And yes, it's, it's, it's very well done. It's intense, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot of moments where it's silly comedy, but that's not one of them. And uh, it's pretty dark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I know that's you know talking about Lois Trials and you know not not being quite the the uh, spy slash Bond girl that Barbara Bach was, but uh, I know on subsequent viewings I I always have this little pang at uh, you know that uh, the whole Doberman pursued. I mean because yes, I mean it is a very chilling sequence, you know, and I keep wishing for the other version of the movie where she gets to be the one who helps him the rest of the time. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Ah, yes. We have, just thinking about uh, performers in here, we're starting to establish more of a regular cast from film to film. Uh, we, of course, have Bernard Lee as M and Desmond Llewellyn as Q and Lois Maxwell as Moneypenny. But we now has, have Jeffrey Keane as the Minister of Def Defense, Sir Frederick Gray, second film in a row, and uh, General Gogol is back as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. And it should also be noted that Gogol's, Gogol's assistant is Rubelvich, which is, of course, the Russian version of Moneypenny. Right. Yes. <laughs> and I believe Rubelvich is also the girl he's with in bed at, the, uh, at one point in the movie, but uh, I think it's the same person. <clears throat> and I think that's, that's a funny note. At least. Yes. Yes. Uh, it it does seem just slightly odd to me that the the good Russian is the head of the KGB. But there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he's he's got his good moments and his bad moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this is. I mean, we're still seventy nine. I mean, pre Reagan, pre Afghanistan. You know, there's still still the uh, the thought that detente might, might is in the air. So <laughs> it, it, it it's the uh, the the you know the 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 new kinder KGB not not the one we're used to ah <laughs> uh, yes yeah but of course uh, the movie's principal villain and he he does end up getting he never actually fights Bond personally but he does get quite a lot of screen time and quite a lot of good dialogue is uh, Drax played by Michael Lonsdale although uh, it took me a long time to realize it's actually Michelle Lonsdale because they did spell it Michael Lonsdale but yes. uh, he's an extremely well known French actor but it took me years to realize that yeah. because uh, it didn't seem French in the movie uh, although frankly given that everything else was French it, it's not a big surprise that they would have had French actors uh, in the film but, uh, yeah, his performance is very droll. He gets a, a, a number of great lines. In fact, almost every line he gets is a good line. Yes, this was a co-production with the French company. It was, I believe, the first time that was done. Yes, that's with, right. Uh, with the Bond film. And I believe they were doing it largely because the British tax laws had changed. So it was to their advantage to do that. Yeah, and that's why... But there why... were some, some tensions uh, that were generated because 
because of doing so much of their their work in France and in other countries and a variety of different uh, sound stages they were filming on and so on. Yeah, they took over three major studios in France to film it. And like the final fight, I'd always assumed until very recently that the, the spaceship seat, uh, set was actually at the Bond set stage, but it wasn't really. Uh, it was uh, it was all built in the, on the French sets. That's right, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so the whole first part of the movie ostensibly takes place in California, but really was shot entirely in France. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, it's almost silly in a way, but yeah, certainly shot heavily in France. Michelle Lonsdale, Corinne Cleary were well-known French actors at the time. So yeah, there's definitely a very heavy French element here. Yes, yeah. and Hugo Drax has his, uh, his place where he lives is like this old French chateau or something, which is been moved brick by brick from France to California, right? <laughs> That's yeah. right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which, which makes sense for the megalomaniac villain, yeah, but, but, but was certainly a, a, a convenience for the plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very convenient. And the one thing is interesting is the movie never never mentions Drax's um, nationality. I, I kept wondering if they ever would or if they ever had at any point, and uh, they didn't. And Drax Drax is a character straight out of the Fleming novel, actually. He's a uh, he was a I forget his origin, but I mean he's a he's a Nazi who gets disfigured in the war and then masquerades as as someone British, perhaps, and he's planning to launch a missile on London. Uh, as revenge for having been defeated in World War II. Yeah, my understanding is that they didn't use that much of the book for this one. Uh, they used um, the the name of Drax, and they used bits of what you know the his his plot was, but uh, it was changed quite quite radically. For oh yeah, the film. no, it was changed quite significantly. Uh, and and despite despite the name, I don't think the the book really had a space component. To it. No, it was just a land-based missile. Uh, the closest I would say that the book and the movie come is uh, Drax leaves Bond and the girl to die under the rocket, which will take off and, and broil them to death. Oh, okay. So that scene, so that, that, that scene is out of the book. That's out of the, uh, Christopher Wood, who also wrote The Spy Who Loved Me, obviously copied that from the uh, or took that from the book as an homage to that, that part. Okay, and yeah, we mentioned, of course, that this was uh, not long after Star Wars, and this was a time, if it isn't um, a time that you remember clearly, this was a time that Star Wars was so huge that everyone was sort of copying that and doing things that mimicked having big space adventures, and you know, all of a sudden, they were everywhere and there were new Star Trek films out and there were TV shows in the US and in the UK doing space things. So it was very sort of fitting with how things were being done at the time and, you know, the popular genre to do things that involved space in one way or another. And they certainly went for that here because you have this idea that Hugo Drax is building these Moonraker shuttles and these are, like, you know, basically the space shuttle that we know that uh, was first launched not too long after this film came out. I believe originally the idea was that the space shuttle was supposed to launch 
launch right at about the same time that this film was mm-hmm. coming out. Yeah. So it was meant to be that, you know, the the event that was really happening, you know, in, in a few weeks or it just happened, uh, you know, you would uh, see it in the film. Well, it turned out that it was, you know, the following year that it actually happened. Yeah, yeah you can never predict things exactly. But uh, again, the movie uh, Drax's Moonrakers are eventually heading towards a what seems unrealistic as a, a city in space or a gigantic multiple satellite structure in space. But I think they were, again, riffing on the idea of Skylab, which had already been launched, I think, at the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. Was already, it already suggested that, that you could put a permanent functioning laboratory, well, not quite permanent, but long-term functioning uh, object or structure in space that people could go up to and come down from. So it's fanciful to suggest that he would have a giant space station, but it's not entirely out of the possibility. Yes, absolutely. It's all a matter of how much it costs to do it. Yeah. And part of this is that, you know, Drax is uh, able to do this because he's able to put vast amounts of money into it. Yep. And uh, yeah, you end up with, you know, he has his own fleet of space shuttles. And something that I found was kind of interesting is that um, because it's sort of lining up with the the real technology, uh, you know, what the space shuttle could do from our perspective was uh, pretty remarkable. But it, within the, the Bond universe, uh, you know, the things that were around in, uh, in You Only Live Twice had sort of already superseded that in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, with the you know the ship in the sixties doing a, a vertical thruster landing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in in that context, uh, landing like an aircraft doesn't seem as remarkable as it did in the real world context. No, but when the movie came out, it would have seemed un- unbelievable. Now we sort of shrug because we've seen it happen many many times. Well, yeah. But yeah. Uh, back then, yeah, it I'm, was all very new. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, I mean, what, one thing I find intriguing about watching the film now is that uh, you know, the, you know, the, it's only now with things like SpaceX that we're finally coming around to the idea of you know now having you know actual private commercial enterprise you know taking us into space. And here was Bond, you know, basically proposing it. But you know, back back in 1979, when you know, no, you know, NASA and the you know, European Space Agency to a little to us to a small extent, but mainly just for sticking satellites up there. You know, what was the only game in town? And uh, you know, it was still the you know, the big debate where it's just, you know, a small section of the science fiction community, you know, led by Robert Heinlein and others who kept saying, you know, no, you've got to get, uh, you know, you've got to get capitalism involved and get uh, get uh, commercial companies competing with each other. But, uh, you know, here they were, you know, showing the entire shuttle program basically coming out of something like that with uh, some unintended consequences, of course. But, uh it did feel with some of the things like the station and so on, it felt like they were riffing a little bit on 2001 A Space Odyssey, which had come out a little more than 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the idea of um, how it was constructed and sort of the uh, uh, rotation for gravity, for uh, effective gravity and absolutely, uh, yeah. uh, uh, shuttle dockings and the commercial aspects and those kinds of things. It, uh, very much had, um, 
had something uh, something of that in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah they tried I mean, to get a number of their details correct and and just ignored the rest of them if it didn't make yeah. it a better movie. It mm-hmm. didn't make for a better movie, they ignored it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, yeah, inter- but- it was interesting to see, and this is something that, you know, having never, you know, never seen what real space shuttle launches look like, the timing of when the various boosters dropped off in this was completely off and it was sort of interesting to see how they had it yeah yeah that that's true um i also liked how they would everyone would simply rush into the ship seconds before they take off and just belt yes. themselves in yeah <laughs> ju- jump in and take off exactly like getting yeah. into a car or something yeah oh yeah yeah but yeah but it was, but it was also interesting in terms of you know compared to when the you only live twice came out which was before the you know the, the moon landing it actually happened and everybody gone to NASA crazy was, uh, you know, there, there, there were some of the realistic elements they threw in there. I mean, uh, you know, Bond getting all, you know, all the first attempt on his life in the centrifuge, which, uh, you know, we got we got to know from the astronaut trainings and, uh, you know, having it uh, go out of control and uh, him having to endure the, you know, the, the, the huge G's until uh, he, uh, you know, fi- finally manages to deploy, to deploy the wrist gun, which will come up later. But That, uh, was, a, that was a pretty good sequence actually oh yeah i, yeah, I yeah, like yeah. that sequence with the with the centrifuge for a couple of reasons they did their thing to you know make it look like the yeah the high gravity situation on his face and so on which was quite effective but also as he's going through this and obviously just about at the point of blacking out you see him sort of remembering flashes of remembering how this you know that he has this gun and how it works and then he uses it and I thought that was really effective it was it was and another good bit of the sequence is is simply the way Roger Moore acts after he gets out of it he's sort of like for once he's actually um, he's 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 winded he's dazed he's completely lost his bearings he sort he of lost it, he lost it. his balance he's yeah. he's red faced he's sweating yeah he really looks like he's been through the ringer yeah and yeah. that's unusual because usually he simply walks away with a quip and in this case it, it was clearly that hurt him that sequence so it's yes. it's a good, it's a very well done bit yeah yeah although he he does manage to get the quip in at the end of the visit so. Uh... The little skeet shooting incident. When, oh yeah, uh, you know, he, he he gets to get, gets to pretend he's not very good at this as he uh, takes that takes out the sniper and uh, yeah. Well, but Drax yeah. is better at the quips than he is. So yes. <laughs> every time he's in a quip battle with Drax, he pretty much loses, except for the very end. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah. So basically, um, and I was saying before about Drax's nationality, but basically Drax is space Hitler essentially. He doesn't really have much of a nationality. He just has a plan to kill the world and rule with a master race of genetically perfect people. That's about it. Yeah, he's he has like a sort of weird eugenics thing in there. Yeah, I mean at least Stromberg in the last movie wanted to felt the world above the sea was decadent and was ruining itself, and that it would life would be better under the sea. That there was a little more logic to it than Drax's. No, I'm just going to wipe out everybody and. My perfect specimens will rule the world, whatever's left, at least. 
Yeah, I think he was going to repopulate somehow. Yeah, with 20 people. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, um, the sort of wiping out the world plots in some of these are uh, a little bit odd, but there you go. Uh, yeah, we should talk about the the big gadget, the wrist gun here, that um, in uh, in one of the, the sequences in this, Q, is, Q gives Bond... Uh, thing that straps in his arm more or less like a wa- like a watch like a wristwatch that he can flick his wrist and shoot darts armor <laughs> armor piercing armor headed or uh, uh, cyanide tipped darts that uh, that can be used to attack things uh, and this comes into play uh, uh, a couple times on the the centrifuge and of course more in the ending as well. It's an interesting device. It's not very practical, and I can imagine if he was wearing it all the time, he'd probably end up firing things by mistake a couple times. Um, and we never did get to see an armor-piercing version of that. I'm not sure how he would switch them out. <laughs> I yeah, I was wondering how he decides which one to use. I, I think he just loads it ahead of time and just has to go with what he's got. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would assume that the one he took the centrifuge out with would have had to have been the ar- the armor-headed one. That's right, and then, then Drax gets the cyanide one later. Presumably, yes. At Although point... maybe that was armor-headed too. We couldn't tell, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I Think it, no, I think we can. I think we can see that it's red when he shoots him. Oh, okay. Oh, um, yes, you're right. You can see the head of the dart is red. You're yeah. quite right. Plus, he's alive when he puts him into the airlock, so he can actually <laughs> like enjoy being cast out into space. Yes. Yes. Um, and we can. Enjoy yeah. So that. The, those are again 2001: A Space Odyssey and other things. Those themes of uh, people being dumped out into space. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely. Um, and we have what we have uh, uh, like a laser gun battle or ray gun battle. The less uh, said about which, probably the better. <laughs> well, that well that was a Star Wars influence for sure. For sure. Um, uh, but ha- having the the uh, cargo bay doors of a space shuttle open and a platoon of of. Uh, of space-suited guys coming out and starting to fire at people. Marines, yes. That's right. Marines. Those were space marines. I guess. (laughs) They've been training for just this mission. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the the U.S. preparedness is is shockingly uh, impressive, in that mm-hmm. in that they find out there's this unknown space station hovering over the Earth, and within five minutes, uh, they have a space shuttle ready for launch, complete with platoon of space marines. Yes, with laser chest guns, <laughs> <laughs> and they're and they're basically stowed in the back of the shuttle yeah. as well. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Yeah, were they standing in the cargo bay all the way from launch? Yeah. <laughs> How does that work? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I guess. Yeah, yeah they, they, they have those special inertial damper things that we heard about on, the, you know, that, that other sci-fi TV show. <laughs> I guess they must. Uh, yes. there's, uh, there's a character we haven't talked about, uh, no. the, uh, the, Bra- the Blanche Ravelock character, uh, ah. the girlfriend for Jaws, Dolly. That's right. I've seen some reviews describe her as superhuman in strength. 
because <laughs> she lifts this giant metal wheel off Jaws. Yeah, the yeah the cable car, the cable car it's, gear. It seems like they're going for a sort of a Frankenstein's monster meets the little girl moment here. Yes. Uh, although apparently it, Richard Keel suggested that since his wife is only really that big, that it would be funnier or be more appropriate for him to end up with a smaller girl as opposed to a larger girl. Right. <laughs> but yeah, Dolly. Dolly is um, well. She's a character with even less lines than Jaws, as it turns out. Uh, she basically rescues Jaws from one of his many mishaps after trying to kill Bond, and they instantly fall in love. Uh, and she is quickly whisked away to join the Drax space program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes no real sense. And uh, and she's on the space station later in the film as well. Yeah. And she's there to be pivotal in. Um, she's actually quite attractive, really. If she just like let down the pigtails and took her glasses off, I'm sure she'd be even hotter. But uh, Jaws is worried that she's not perfect enough for Drax's uh, superhuman society when really it's him yeah. she's worried about. Yeah, well, I, I always got the sense it was that they, they kind of both realized that yeah, that, that that's a mutual a mutual thing that uh, neither yeah. of them really fits. But her presence is there so that Jaws can be given a moral excuse to switch sides at the end. Yes, and uh, he, he does. He makes the choice for love. And, and I, ma- I think we have to face she's there for comedy as well. Yes, of course. Oh, yeah, yes. It, it's this really <laughs> odd, goofy thing of all all of a sudden this uh, this uh, you know, pretty well indestructible uh, uh, henchman who's, you know, in his uh, second Bond film, which never happens with a henchman, henchman, all of a sudden he's, uh, you know, without any words, falling head over heels for this girl. Right, and the scene where they're the only two to basically survive the carnage, and they run into each other's arms in the wreck- wreckage of the space station is hilarious because it's it's weird and it's creepy and it's bizarre, but it, it, it's like funny at the same time. And they give Jaws a line. Yes, a romantic line, but <laughs> it actually works. <laughs> if you're gonna say one thing in in the entire film or both films, he gets a good line. Well, here's to us. In a sort of a charming Bond-style romantic way. With a <laughs> bottle of Bollinger, even, and two of glasses. Course. Two glasses that apparently haven't been destroyed. Yeah. Along yeah. with everything else. Yeah, well, well, of course, yeah, that, that is one, one of the conceits of the film. That, you know, yes, important things in glass, in glass don't get destroyed. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, since earlier in the Venice sequence, you know, we have that whole thing when he discovers the lab, discovers the nerve gas, gets the sample, and then has that whole fight where they destroy every piece of glass in the museum. <laughs> except, except the one the in vi- his pocket. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah, for which, the vial, that which, would kill them both. But. Which, admittedly, he checks at one point, so it's not like they forgot yes. it there. Yeah, yeah so, I know. I'll give them partial credit for that. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of amusing that he checked, uh, checks to make sure it's it's still okay. I think he'd know if it wasn't okay. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And uh, so the whole that sequence in the lab, of course, is uh, predicated with another bit of timely humor, which is the the uh, code to the door is the theme is the classic bit of music from. Uh, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's right. And it's funny, it's a movie that probably is unknown to our generation, our younger <laughs> generation today. They've yeah. probably, unless they're Spielberg fans, they've probably never seen it. Right. Yeah, it, I mean, that may be. It, it hasn't endured uh, as, as well as some other things have, considering how big it was at the time. 
I mean, I think it's still a great movie and one of Spielberg's best, but uh, certainly one of his least. I mean, it's it's got that awe without the too much cheesiness, um, and yet it's forgotten. I think today, so the, I think more people have seen Moonraker than know what that musical tone represents. Yeah, that that may be. They they came out in the same year, right? They were both nineteen seven uh, or no, Close Encounters was seventy seven. So this was just a couple of years later. In everyone, everyone knew that tone. Yeah, everyone would recognize. Da, 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 da. And yeah, now, now maybe now not. But... He knows. And more people are watching the Bond films than, than remember that movie. That's, that's probably true. There was another reference, I think, although it was more more subtle. That was um, there was uh, like a horn for an alarm kind of thing earlier in the in the film. That was like the beginning of uh, of um, also Sprock Zarathustra, famously used in oh, 2001. Oh yes, 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 yeah. yeah. So it had the ba ba ba. <laughs> so there, you know, not as as big and obvious a reference, but there was that reference in there too. Two thousand and one. Yeah. So yeah, they were throwing these different kinds of things in there, which was kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, we have to talk about some of the effects work and model work in here. And I know another brilliant Derek Meddings. Yeah, Derek Meddings outdid himself in this one. Uh, the work with the multiple space shuttles and the space station, uh, and um, uh, yes, even the laser battle. It was it was pretty impressive. I mean, the truth is, it still holds up now. You look at it now, and aside from movies like Star Wars and this, very little sci-fi from that era, I, I mean, space-based stuff is treated quite as seriously. Or, I mean, there's, sure, there's some of those movies, I guess, were like Silent Running, maybe. But it does, it, it does look very good, and it was very impressive how dynamic those were. What they ended up doing for a lot of those sequences was they would actually uh, re spool the film they had shot on and re-expose it a second time to do a second element. Mm. Uh, so they would film a star field with the stars where a space shuttle was supposed to be blotted out and then, you know, and move, you know, what stars were being blotted out and then refilm the same thing with uh, the shuttle then moving uh, over that. So you would then have those two elements together and they would wind back again and repeat. And they went up to having 48 separate elements that they would expose the same film 48 times to composite different things onto it. Amazing mm -hmm. how much work you do when you don't have the advantage of CGI. Yeah. Yes. The, the effort that people had to go through. Well, they also, they just didn't have time to do the sort of optical plate work and, you know, the other kinds of, of approaches that you would use at that time. Uh, Derek Metting said in an interview, you know, they just didn't have time to do those things. So they went to this approach, which it turns out worked very well for them. Hmm. And they did, you know, have some very dynamic uh, sequences there and things with a lot of different things moving uh, in in one scene in space. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I, I mean, I know in my case, I mean, for, for many, many years, and you know, and certainly Star Wars and this kind of bore it out. And you know, I was, I was, was insisted that you know, no, it's it's better to use models. It's better to use models. And the, and even with the with the platings, you know, they could sometimes be you know, sort of this. 
you know, slight distance that you got with stuff where you can kind of tell it's like, you know, oh no, that's been composited. But but doing it this way, I mean, it may have been, you know, it's much it's much more arduous. But uh, you know, but you know, until the computers finally caught up, I mean, this really was the way to to get it looking, you know, really sharp and crisp and like it's actually something physical out there. And uh, you know, and, and uh, it really does does show, and it really does hold up. Yes, it certainly worked very well, and it was far from the uh, first work on sort of space imagery that uh, that Meddings had done. No, of course. <laughs> with well, certainly with uh, a lot of the the Jerry Anderson work he had done with uh, Fireball XL five and and others, um, but other things he had already done with the with the Bond films and so on. Um, so yeah, some impressive stuff there. The stunts in the opening sequence for Moonraker were also pretty impressive. Oh yeah, I mean if you're looking to top. You're looking to top the the ski jump from the previous movie, and while the ski jump is remains an, an iconic thing, this one is pretty close. The oh, idea yeah. of being thrown out of a plane without a parachute is yeah. just like a really scary concept. Like, who could possibly survive that? And and they managed to do that with some amazing stunt work from these guys mm-hmm. who were diving with these tiny parachutes hidden under their clothes. It's just incredible when you think about it. Yeah, you yeah. had like three different people floating around in midair and free fall, you know, trying to get to the other guy's parachute and this pretty, pretty crazy stuff. And this was something where they went to people who were not film professionals at all. They were people who were into aeronautic stunt work. And, you know, that was the sort of thing they did. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of them, it was his very first uh, movie stuntman job his, uh, and he was doubling James Bond which is you know considered one of the you know the top things you can do as uh, as a stunt person so uh, yeah they had some some pretty impressive uh, mid-air stuff there and that gave us our uh, our first hint that Jaws was going to be involved in this film you see him there, and then he doesn't show up for a little while. Yes, and it also gives you the hint that Jaws will be treated as a joke in this movie, because it, it, Jaws basically, his parachute fails to open, and then he proceeds to sort of react in mock horror, flap his arms like a bird, and, yes. then, and then finally impact on a circus tent. Yes. All, yeah. sort, of, all sort of for laughs. And, yeah. Uh, that's sort of one of the one of the tonal shifts of the movie. It goes from the really thrilling sequence into something that's extremely silly, and sometimes it doesn't balance out just right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Later, later in the movie, we've got sequences like the um, the the gondola chase, which is silly enough to begin with. The idea that the idea that the, that um, there'd be an assassin waiting in a in a sort of a, a gondola slash hearse. On the canals of Venice, hiding in a coffin. Uh, That was a little bizarre, wasn't it? Throwing knives where he wastes the first throwing knife on Bond's gondolier. (laughs) You think that you're going to get the shot, go for Bond. Yeah, Yeah, well, you know, that's because they they, they don't want any witnesses on this public execution on the canal. (laughs) Don't go for the gondolier first. That's not going to work out. Yeah, don't don't waste your element of surprise on the guy who isn't, uh, who won't know what to do with it. 
James Bond. And then that proceeds to be a fairly silly chase uh, through the canals with sight gags like the coffin floating down the canal. And then, of course, it it finishes off with an even more ridiculous sight gag, which is the idea of the gondola turning into a hovercraft. Yes. (laughs) Or gondola, as I think they like to call it. And then basically going for a spin around St. Mark's Square. And it's a silly scene. It's played to classical music. And it's not as bad as some people would say, although it does feature... Uh, once again, the return of our double-taking drinking tourist friend. Yes. Uh, also now features a double-taking pigeon, which is largely considered uh-huh. like the low point of all Bond movies. Yes. <laughs> if you have a pigeon doing a double-take at James Bond going by in oh, a, yeah. a hovercraft. There were bits of the powered gondola uh, sequence that looked quite good. Yeah, but, but to be honest... It- some of it looked good, but yeah, it descended into more slapstick than was necessary. Yeah, yeah and even, even right. villains, when the villains drive off, like, one of them falls into the water and, and just goes, like, stupido to his friend. It's like, it's played yeah. for, it, the silliness doesn't yeah. quite know how to back and, oh, yeah. and there yeah. was one, there was uh, a point where the the gondola cuts through uh, through a boat and the, you know, the two halves are there and someone is in half a boat sinking and trying to row himself out of it. And yeah, the, just, lover, the lovers are in one half and the gondolier is in the other. Yeah, and the gondolier yeah. is trying... It's, yeah, it was just silly at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 yeah, and the stuff on the water was bad enough, but, uh, I mean, we, uh, what, what, once it comes out as the hovercraft, I mean, the, the, you know, and yes, not everybody's going to know this, but anybody who's been to Venice, you know, something that big, it's like you're never going to get out of St. Saint, Saint Mark's Square at that point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. He really <laughs> did know. just go around it, basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then gets off at the other side because, you yeah. know, no, it's, uh, you know, all, all the streets leading in are pretty small and there's no way that thing's going to get down. <laughs> so. That's true. It was just for a sight gag and nothing more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah and, and, uh, Jaws, Jaws reappears later, but every time he does, it's a scene where he menaces people for a few minutes, and then, I, I mean, he does it at the carnival in Rio, and he does it at the uh, on the cable car in Rio, and mm-hmm. every time it's like he's menacing and it starts, and, and the carnival scene where he, he's walking down the alley with the giant head, which is also a sinister clown on top of everything else. Uh, it's a very, very tense, scary scene, but later he's sort of pulled away with dancing revelers and it's silly and that he just gives up and starts dancing mm-hmm. or later when he's on the cable car he's he crashes into the building like full speed and he gets through the the shock horror reaction and when he goes over the waterfall he gets to break off the wheel and sort of plunge to his doom none of which actually takes right yeah and, yeah, uh, he, and also, he does like, have some good moments and some good sort of um you know intimidating and scary kind of stuff there but you're right it always ends in this sort of silly comedy thing mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean actually that whole that whole cable car sequence I mean, to, to me just kind of you know also kind of showed up you know where uh where lois child's is uh, holly goodhead you know really does come off as kind of this pale shadow of triple x in uh in spy who loved me because you know you know here here we have you know yes it's bond with a fellow agent you know taking on jaws and you know she just gets sort of you know knocked out and is like you know completely ineffectual throughout that entire fight and she doesn't and even know who he is whereas yeah. uh, i definitely knew who he was yeah oh yeah yeah and also i mean you know the way he's played up i mean even 
even when he, you know, he gets, you know, the the first, you know, in mention of him, although you know it's not indirect, is you know when Drax is looking for the new henchman, he's like, oh yes, well if you can get him, so <laughs> yeah. it's just like you know, you know the number one henchman in the world. So. <laughs> it's a great line that actually when Drax says that. Oh, it was a good yeah. moment. Yeah. 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 I think part of what may have played into this is after You Only Live Twice, they were getting lots of letters from children saying how much they liked Jaws and also saying that they wanted him to be a good guy. Why have him be a villain? So I guess they sort of reacted to that because by the end of this film, he is a good guy for a little while and they do sort of play him as the element for children and for the comedy more so. Yeah, and I think if you... Uh, I, I don't think he actually kills anybody in this movie except maybe some Drax henchmen at the end. Yeah. He, he doesn't actually... And in the previous movie... Every time he shows up, somebody dies horribly, usually, at the beginning. But, uh, and, you do, and we talked about that in the last podcast, but this time, every time he shows up, he's usually foiled in his plan, and he never actually gets to kill anybody. Yeah, I think he was used much more effectively in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, but like I said, the part about making him into a good guy at the end, by not having him kill someone in this movie, they're sort of removing it from the more horrifying acts he's committed. That's so right, we never yeah. Actually, we never actually see him murder anyone in this film by biting into their neck with his teeth. Right. And so therefore, it, it makes it seem a lot, he makes him seem a lot less dangerous. Yes, he does become, uh, you know, a more, um, uh, a more comical kind of character. Yeah, yeah. Beyond beyond that, I mean, uh, one of the other elements I love about this movie is I love the uh, the travelogue. Again, like the last movie, this is definitely another globe hopping Bond movie, and uh, I think like it, it does a nice job of shooting parts of Venice, the canals, St. Mark's Square. Uh, it does a, a really good job of Rio um, going up on. I've been there and going up onto uh, uh, Sugarloaf where they shoot the those shots up the cable car. And then um, getting that amazing expansive shot of Rio from, from high up, is it, that's what it looks like, and it's a fantastic view. It really is amazing, and I love watching that scene just to, to see it again. So they really, they really did a good job there. Uh, then the movie goes to Iguazu Falls, also in Brazil, and they do some nice jobs getting a bunch of different shots of the waterfalls from different angles. Uh, from below into the in the gorge itself, uh, shots from above it, and then strangely enough, the movie shoots a couple of shots exteriors at uh, at some pyramids in Tikal, Guatemala, to give you that whole uh, the, the the giant pyramid is a real pyramid, of course, right. and it really exists in the jungle. So I really really enjoyed the different locations that they went to in this movie. Yeah, by this time, I think they had really sort of mastered the approach of having Bond sort of chase around all sorts of places around the world in order to, you know, follow things up and do whatever needs to be done. And, you know, that, you know, was, by this time was something that, you know, really worked well. Yeah, I think it's something the older movies did a bit better than some of the newer ones have done, too. Sometimes the newer ones just use a city and they don't really use it well. I think these older films tried to use their locations pretty well. Okay, okay. fair enough. Uh, speaking of things from older films, we had uh, a, a return in uh, the theme song. Shirley Bassey is back. That's right, and and John Barry as well. He had taken a uh, he hadn't he wasn't on the last movie either, and one might say his Golden Gun score was a little bit less than uh, 
and less than his other efforts. But so I think I think it's a very good score. I, I like the song Moonraker. It never really, it never went anywhere. No one remembers it today at all. It almost never gets played. It's not anywhere. one of the more memorable things. And the thing I always remember about it is it's the one of the three Shirley Bassey Bond songs, and the one that I can never remember. Yeah. Right, but I actually like it. I think it's a pretty good song. Um, and John Barry's music score, I, I actually have the soundtrack for this one, and it's uh, it's very moody and atmospheric. It works really well with the space music, and I, I quite like Barry's work here. Yes, absolutely. As we've been coming back, as I've been re-watching for this, I've been enjoying the John Barry soundtracks more than the films where other people have done the soundtracks for the most part. Yeah, I think he had a sense of of the flows of the films. He changes and progresses with the movies as they go, whereas all those one-offs are just like, hey, I get to do a Bond score. Uh, and Barry continuously adapting and changing his own work. So yeah, I think the, there's more the one progress. That, the one that we had in The Spy Who Loved Me, which was not John Barry, and the one from Live and Let Die, which was George Martin, those two both felt like they were trying to veer towards a pop music sound more so. And yeah. I didn't yeah. think it worked very well in either case. No, and yeah, I mean, it's Marvin, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, it's Marvin Hamlish and Spy You Love Me, who, you know, you know, you know, that's you know, right, they, yeah. they, you know a, a, a wonderful composer for, you know, Broadway and, you know, doing a chorus line and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I, I agree. I mean, it just didn't work as well. And uh, getting back to John Barry was a... a a definite plus on the score side. I mean, I, I I agree with you, Brian. That I mean, yeah, the the song itself. I mean, I just I just find, find not that it's terrible. It's just one 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 of the least memorable. Yeah, it is one of the least memorable. I agree. And I I would say that even uh, with the man with the golden gun, while it was not a spectacular soundtrack by any means, it fit with the aesthetic of the Bond film better than those other, you know, the other two that we, that we mentioned that were not John Barry. Yes, I agree. I think so. I mean, his music, like I said, it, it just keeps evolving with the movies. Whereas a lot of the other guys, they just, they're, they're not really, they're just doing their first take on it. And uh, it's not as interesting. Often. That's right. And the, the going all the way back, the Monty Norman soundtrack for Dr. No uh, was pretty good, but there, there wasn't enough there yet. You know, there was uh, a lot of uh, repetition in it because there just hadn't been all that much developed for the Bond films yet at that point. Uh, one thing I did notice uh, in this film, in Moonraker, was the 007 theme is back. That's, that's right, in the boat chase. In the boat chase, yep. that's right. Which I think we saw in about four of the films from the 60s or something like that. It was in several of them. Yep. So it was nice to hear that back again. It's been, a, it's been a little while and it was nice to hear it there. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I think this was also Ken Adams' last James Bond movie. At least I don't recall him being involved in any of the subsequent ones. As uh, set designer or art, art yeah, designer? Yeah, production, production designer. And, and he did a really, I think, again, another really good job. Uh, this time he was sort of working off of, um, I think he was working with the whole, the whole like, gods from space concepts. In the 70s, there were quite a number of novels suggesting, or, you know, real, like, nonfiction suggesting that, was it Eric Von Daniken or something? Yeah, that, yep, that that's him. <laughs> gods had, uh, like, space aliens had come and sort of 
populated Earth, and so that I got the sense that like those pyramids yeah. were were meant to reflect that whole '70s. Uh, way of thinking and I really like it again it sort of it captures the 70s very well I find yeah, yes, yeah. it fits and, uh, in with other things that were being done uh, in film and TV with sort of uh, um, space things and Egyptian iconography and you know things from Battlestar Galactica and so on yeah yeah and I also when you, when you mentioned about the, the Bond theme coming back I mean it's also kind of appropriate in that chase because that that boat really is kind of like the the aquatic version of the DB5 with uh, all of it all of its little mines and uh, rear shield and uh, you know and, and not an, not, not a uh, villain ejector seat you know but a uh, a hang glider ejector so. <laughs> apparently they actually tried to do uh, a real practical effect of someone doing a hang glider escape like that and they scrapped it it didn't work uh, yeah i'm sure they, yeah. they did get some hang glider footage but they never quite got something that uh that worked properly i think it went off in the the wrong direction or something and they ended up doing it with uh with model work and studio shots and things that's yeah. a tricky one to bail out of if you don't do it right yeah yeah <laughs> insurance company might have something to do with that yeah yeah <laughs> and, they, but, uh, and they also had when they were doing parts of the uh the, some of the crazy stuff with the boats and the waterfall they had there they actually had um i think it was jaws boat that was supposed to go over actually got stuck <laughs> like on the edge of the waterfall yeah. and it was like ridiculously difficult to to get to it in any way and you know they weren't sure how they were going to get this boat out of the way they had um what? did they actually send it over Iguazu Falls I believe so yeah Wow. They, in order to get that off of the edge, they had um like someone dangling off a helicopter to get to it and it didn't work. Uh <laughs> And they just, they went back the next day and it eventually had gone over on its own. It's interesting, the movie is filmed in Brazil, of course, but Iguazu Falls is on the border between Brazil and Argentina. And in fact, at least a couple of those shots were from the Argentinian side. Right. And uh, I noticed in the credits, they do thank Argentina, but they never really say that it was filmed in Argentina, I think. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they did actually um, say, you know, send some things over there. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, they had some uh, some complex stunt work there, and that was, uh, I think, fairly unusual to actually have uh, a significant uh, stunt like that in a Bond film that was scrapped. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it ha happens occasionally, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, beyond that, I mean, I find that uh, I like also the ending where Bond and Holly have to basically go hunt down the globes. It's an effective sequence. It's a little bit, again, it's very much Luke in the uh, in the chair during Star Wars or, you know, in the Death Star, the whole, like, yeah. you must fire the thing and destroy it. It's pretty much copy of the, the ending of Star Wars, but I like the way they managed to do it. And uh, despite the fact that scientifically they would have a lot of trouble ever landing that shuttle 
after that, it was still a good uh, sequence. Yeah, well, at, at, at the time, they didn't know about the tile. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Well, yeah, the, uh, the way in which um, the, uh, the poison devices in the atmosphere were deployed was not too bad, scientifically. But in terms of uh, how they were shot down and that sort of thing, yeah, that didn't work too well. <laughs> yeah. Also, they, um, they they hold up remarkably well in the atmosphere for having no no, no real heat shield <laughs> <laughs> and being made of glass. Really. Yeah. Yes. It's a, you know, it's like you know, no. Once once it starts uh, hitting the atmosphere like that, it's it, it's pretty much gone. So. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> by by the time it was anywhere close to where they were, it it had deployed already. It was gone. It, it basically, <laughs> need to be the size of that meteor that almost hit Russia. Right. Yeah. In order to get far enough, and then. And scatter its its uh yeah, its and, content. and firing it and yeah, so you're breaking it up into pieces that are still gonna fall down. How does that help? Well, <laughs> I guess once you expose the nerve agent into space, it'll freeze up or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah okay. let's not look for logic there. Um, and then so far, the end, of course, the end, you get a couple of amusing bits like, A, the Space Marines somehow have managed to dock with the flying throw-off part of the saucer that contains Jaws and dollies. So actually survived. Yes. <laughs> the movie basically had to throw that line in there. Otherwise, you'd think, well, they're doomed. Right, yeah. <laughs> but no, they, they, they survived. And even though Jaws is an internationally known killer, uh, the Space Marines don't know that. So they'll simply... <laughs> transport him back to Earth and let him go. And of course we get the uh, uh, a sort of a callback to the previous films like let's catch Bond uh, in Fulgrante Delicto again. And so once again they have uh, the embarrassment of having everyone see Bond and Holly together in I'm not sure what that was. Whether that was the, if that was Moonraker 5 surely it had like a, a deck for other people to travel in again like the other ones did. Mm-hmm. No, it just has some like empty space bay which has room for like a hammock bed and I don't know what that was. I think it was it, like some sort of escape pod or something it could have been drax shuttles had had anything like that but but that was drax's personal shuttle i guess it would have his own little pleasure room in it or something maybe yes but whatever it it does give like the last of the the i think the best of the smutty lines yet not too smutty from q which was he's attempting re-entry sir which is a great line i mean they they went too far later with the Pierce Brosnan movies and those lines, but I think he's attempting to entry at least to a ten-year-old was hilarious and fun. Yeah. It was sick. I yeah. still think uh, it's funny. Line. Well, the fact yeah, yeah, the yeah. fact that Q is saying uh, when he isn't looking at the screen with the video exactly. uh, with the video exactly. feed, he's talking about what the shuttle's doing. He's the tech guy, that's right. so that's right. yeah. that makes it even better. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's well if, Q, if Q were looking at the screen, it would not have been that funny. That's true. That's true. It, but it's it a added a farcical quality to it. So, Gary, final thoughts on this? 
So I, I've always enjoyed this movie. I know it, it doesn't rank highly with a lot of uh, Bond critics, and sure, there are a lot of silly moments to it, but uh, I think on the whole, it's still very entertaining. Uh, the, the traveling around the world's great. The sets are great. Uh, it's very unusual. I mean, going to space is, is pretty unusual for a Bond movie. And so I really think this is still a fun film to watch. I enjoy okay. it. Okay, Edwin? Um, yeah, I mean, my... I'm um, not quite as high on it, but I mean, my sense about it, especially rewatching it this time, so close to Spy Who Loved Me, was I, I, I really feel like it was, a, you know, where Spy Who Loved Me was sort of getting the balance right. In this one, they were t- like taking all of the elements that they had in Spy, Spy Who Loved Me and then just like ramping them up. And uh, to my mind, it just gets it just gets too over the top. And, you know, while, you know, yes, it, I mean, it, it's not to the point where it doesn't have the entertainment value. Just to me, as sort of as a film over Overall, it, uh, it it doesn't hold together as well. It uh, there's sort of a sense of uh, trying too hard in a way, and uh, you know, and then and then in terms of you know certain elements, you know, you know Lo- Lois Trials just doesn't doesn't quite come off as well as Barbara Bach did in the previous movie. You know, in a very similar role. You know, yeah, I mean, as the, the fellow spy and ally who they sort of you know they they try and have them have co- a little bit of conflict at the beginning when she appears to be part of Drax's staff, but. Uh, you know, but it just, uh, you know, it's like, uh, they, you know, they, they, they were trying to make it bigger and better and uh, it winds up coming off just not quite as well. But, uh, you know, but I do agree. It's, it, you know, it, it, it's still fun and entertaining. Just, uh, you know, not, uh, not quite up to the level of the previous film. I'm going to agree with a lot of that. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me definitely did a lot of very similar things and did them better. Uh, I think in this one, they took a lot of the humor too far and, you know, it lost its uh, sense of balance that The Spy Who Loved Me had done so well. Um, and, they, you know, there were some things that did not work all that well. I didn't like Michael Lonsdale quite as much as I like the villain in The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, but all in all, this one is, is okay. It's, it's entertaining. It's enjoy, it's enjoyable. It's not one of the, one of the best or one of the worst, but you know, it's, it's okay. So, thank you for listening. James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. For real this time. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is Brian. Take care, folks. That's Gary. See you next time. And this is Edmund. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on the Voice of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.